the Rural Health Voice, Episode 74, The Health Wagon. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What are some of the barriers to health care faced by people living in Appalachia? Dr. Teresa Tyson and Dr. Paula Hill Collins joined me to talk about how they are literally going around in circles to bridge the gaps. Well, welcome ladies, glad to have you here today. Oh, thank you for having us. Mm -hmm. All right, so with three of us, we're gonna have to go back and forth a little bit. So I'm gonna ask uh, Teresa first, how did you first become interested in healthcare? Oh my gosh, it goes way back, I think, to my grandmother. She was, um, actually, she took in um, patients that had TB, you know, long before there was a cure for TB, she would take them into her home to care for them. And so I think I just got the the love of service, you know, uh, from my grandmother and then my mom. She always wanted to be on the mission field helping somebody. So I think I just inherited, you know, the, the that caring from uh, both of them who were just so highly influential, you know, in my life. What about you, Paula? I, uh, growing up here in Southwest Virginia and in the Bible Belt, service was was uh, around all of our tables. And Teresa and I have talked about how important that our grandparents were in our lives. And my grandmother actually worked as a nurse's aide in one of the local hospitals. And she would knit me nursing caps because she wanted me to be a nurse. And she, I never remember not be her being a service to someone and uh that's what we were taught my mom would say the only way to be a blessing to be blessed in this life is to be a blessing to others and that's what what I've tried to model my life after is um always to give and to give back but my grandmother kind of like I have some uh that I would put on my dolls but you know the big white nursing caps that everybody wants she would make me those and knit them and that's how I think she just kind of took me when I was like two or three year old and that's where she put me to be and um, my mom and dad encouraged that also they were both teachers and my mom was uh, she always actually wanted to be a member of the uh, military when they had the nursing the the nursing corps back then and oh, I have to look up they had a name that they gave them at that time but she was actually wanting to be one of those so they always wanted to be nursing because caring and uh, giving to others is actually what we have. And basically, my mom was so given and so caring. And that was just instilled in our hearts. Oh, what a great memory. And so how did you first become involved in the health wagon? See, Paul and I, we have been we have been best friends. We, we said we coined the, the, the term BFs long before it was popular. Paul and I have been best friends since we were 14 years old. We have graduated four times together. Um, we graduated high school. We got our bachelor's at East Tennessee State, uh, our master's at the University of Kentucky, and our doctorate is from the University of Alabama. Uh, but I came to be with the health wagon. I have been here. I am going to reach 30 years here really soon. I have been here uh, really all my all my professional career uh, I have been here and I ha had my first child um, at St. what was St. Mary's Hospital then and I had my daughter Ashton and the the I got you know really affiliated with the nuns that were there and they were telling me about an opening uh, with Sister Bernie Kenny and the health wagon and so you know I went and applied for that job and I have been here ever since 
loved every minute of it, you know, and if you if you have a, a job that you love so much like that, you never work a day in your life, as you know, so that is that is true. I, I, I just followed in her footsteps. Sister Bernie was just such an incredible mentor to Paula and myself, and we just, you know, we wanted to follow in her footsteps, uh, you know, and that's the reason we, you know, continue to further our education so that we could continue to help our people here, you know, in the Appalachian region because this is one of the most vulnerable populations in the United States, and so, you know, uh, we, we came back from going to school, we came back here, you know, and did what we so love. And Paula, for those who don't know, what is the health wagon? The Health Wagon is a, the oldest, actually, mobile uh, health clinic on wheels in the nation. And we were founded in 1980 by Sister Bernie Kinney. And the way we received our name, the Health Wagon, is she was one of the first nurse practitioners in the area and was a mentor to myself and Teresa, who went on and furthered our education as a result of Sister Bernie because we saw what she did and we loved it. Uh, she came here. She was in Tanzania, Africa, and she was placed here by the Richmond diocese because the poverty was so bad she was removed from Africa and placed here and began out of the back of her Volkswagen Beetle going up and down the the mountains helping people to obtain their medications treating patients in their houses on the side of the road and we grew from there and that was the hints from the Volkswagen people but we ended up being the health wagon and Teresa is it a free clinic does that imply that all your staff are volunteers no, I mean, um, no, we actually have uh, 54 staff. We have, uh, God has just blessed us abundantly. We have really grew, but no, those are paid staff. So although we give free care, the care that we give is not free. Um, it, uh, you know, we do have paid staff members. We do have a whole host of volunteers that do help us as well. But um, yeah, we we have paid staff here. We couldn't we couldn't do it without all the uh, all the incredible donors and the foundations and different groups that you know uh, come alongside the health wagon that they have the same same mindset to reach out and to help the underserved. And so we couldn't do it without those you know incredible donors. You know um, that you know alongside helping us with this very valuable mission. Here. Here, you know, in the central Appalachian region. And the Health Wagon has received many awards and a great deal of attention at the state and federal level. And you've even been on CBS twice, I think. We have, we have gotten a lot of coverage, I mean, here for, you know, taking care of this vulnerable population, um, you know, national and international and as well as like local media. But, you know, like internationally, you know, we've had all kinds of correspondents come here and actually, you know, they cannot believe that this is, you know, still happening in America, that people do not have access to health care, that this happens in the United States. I mean, you know, and what we're most known, one of the most things that we're known for too, uh, we have the remote area medical we had that for 20 years here in Wise County where we had the big uh, outreach a lot of people have seen that uh, free identical medical care and kind of COVID you know uh, put a stop to you know the large outreaches uh, like that but you know when people you know like the international press they really could not believe that this was happening in America that people would sometimes line up a week in advance you know to get their teeth pulled you know to, to get eyeglasses and things like that because you know so many other countries are kind of so far ahead of us, you know, in the, you know, in healthcare accessibility, you know, for uh, their populations. And so we, we do garner a lot of attention just because of, you know, the, uh, the inequities that still exist in healthcare. And we are, our story is such a 
it's a moving story because Teresa and I are both advocates and we, we believe in what we do. So we have a passion about it. So I think we attract people in the media because we have a strong story. The sad thing is our story is very, very true and it is here in America. We're not talking about, you know, some South American country or we're not talking about Africa. We're talking about the United States. And our story is very sad, but it's very true. And that's what draws people to us because I think when they hear this is America and this is how everything is not just drinking your Chardonnay and being physicians and having people come into your clinics in the city and walking down the road down, you know, and catching the, the bus or the subway and life goes on, you know, this is a total different aspect here in the Appalachian Mountains. If you have insurance, you're going to travel three hours. So I think that's one of the reasons that we attract the media because there, the emphasis has been on health care. But more than that, our story is real, it's true, and it's unbelievable. Because you think here we are, 2022 now, and here people still don't have access to health care, regardless of all the attempts at the government. And I think that's because they politicized it as we have been politicized in the pandemic. Well, let's talk about the pandemic. How has it changed your priorities and how you operate? Oh, my gosh. Uh, we have, we, I really think you know, at the end of the day, when this is, if we ever get, if we ever get through this, uh, that the health wagon will certainly be recognized as standing in the gap between uh, COVID-19 decimating this very vulnerable population. We had over last year 35,000 patient encounters, and I did say 35,000. We, like I said, we've got a, we've got a fairly small staff. We have given, well, over 20,000 tests. We have given out over 4,000 masks. Um, we have vaccinated probably 4,000 individuals. Now, we still have very low vaccine rates here, but we have given an, an incredible amount. We're closing in on 6,000 monoclonal antibody treatments that are just, like, um, incredible. We have had a 100% success rate with individuals that we could deliver those to. So, and we're doing those mobily. And we are, uh, we, to my knowledge, we're the only people in the United States that are doing that mobily. We actually had one of the first ever post-COVID clinics when, you know, that was well over a year ago when we were seeing the effects of our first COVID patients not being able, well, they would recover and get a little bit better and then, you know, rapidly decline again. So we had one of the first post-COVID clinics in the nation um, as well. But, the, you know, we've had a phenomenal response, um, you know, with the, uh, certainly with the assistance of the Virginia Department of Health, uh, Dr. Uh, Brooke Rossheim, that has helped, you know, us uh, have testing here, you know, give uh, helped us get the vaccines here, helped us get the monoclonal antibodies here. And so we actually, uh, never in a million years did I think that we would have to set up an infusion center uh, infused with monoclonal antibodies, but we rose to the occasion and we have an infusion center uh, as, as well now. So just a phenomenal response by the staff here. Um, you know, and I really think at the end of the day, like I said, we're going to be we're going to be noted for standing in the gap, to because it's you know very vulnerable population. We have high rates of COPD and asthma, you know, and coal miners pneumoconiosis, which is black lung. Um, you know, so 
just a lot of health issues, a lot of health uh, health disparities, and we you know we know that you know people with health care disparities you know have been disproportionately affected by you know the COVID nineteen. But we've had an incredible, incredible, robust response uh, you know to this. We have actually talked on that on that several times about what our response you know has been and how we can help others, other clinics you know learn from us and and respond as we have. And it has totally changed our lives here. We still are focusing on <clears throat> chronic disease management, but with this, we are pulled away because we have so much underlying health conditions here, <clears throat> allergies, which I have, and uh, the rest of the nation are totally, everyone has, every place has been hit with pockets. But here, we have done had to do extreme amount of education on vaccines, on wearing masks, on advocating at the local and the uh, state politics, you know, to try to make sure that we have vaccines down here for our people. But at the same time, when we're trying to treat COVID and test, and our staff has been in overdrive, Dr. Tyson and myself have been working literally seven days a week, 24-7. Uh, I mean, it just like it never stopped for us, especially during those surges, such as we just had in mid-January. And it seems like we're always drawn back into the pandemic. But yet at that same time, you have someone that may have hypertension and diabetes. Well, now they have COVID. Now they have post-COVID. So we have began the first COVID, post-COVID clinic that I know of uh, via telehealth. And we were one of the very first ones to get on this because we recognized the complications that were occurring with uh, with COVID. It wasn't just like the flu that just went away. You had so many multi-organ involvement that now has become more and more prominent in the news and apparent to everyone. So for the last two years, we have been focused on the managing already a vulnerable population that's now hit with COVID. We've had, you know, Wise County right now was just... Uh, had the notoriety, the negative notoriety of having most deaths in the host state of Virginia. And you mentioned the low vaccination rates. And I know, you know we've, we've talked about COVID vaccines several times in this podcast and how, you know, there, unfortunately, there tends to be a, um, oh, a bias that, that people in Appalachia aren't getting vaccinated because they're maybe they're ignorant or maybe they're distrustful of the government or how, how is the health wagon, you talked about education, how has the health wagon stepped in to address those issues in, in a way that makes sense for the culture? You know, Dr. Tyson and I grew up here, so people trust us. So we become in the forefront. We went to people's homes and gave the injection vaccines. We went to uh, businesses. Plus, we were constantly putting out there on social media. We did podcasts. We did um, live videos when we were doing the vaccines, and we actually were begging our people and saying, trust us. We have vaccines of us. Uh, we had pictures. We had it videoed of us taking the vaccine. They are distrustful in this area, but they're also so we have tried to undergo a lot of social media 
knowledge that was not knowledge. We had to up with all of the misinformation, and I want to say not even misinformation, more like fallacies that are out there and that we have had to try to circle around and circumvent to try to overcome that. And in this nation, it's hard. You know, uh, we actually have done several. We uh, gave a 95-year-old uh, man his first uh, vaccine that he'd had. He was, and he said, you know, we said, why are you here? Because we actually had a Danish uh, reporter there. Why were you ready to get your vaccine? And so many people don't. And he said, when he went in the army, he had 15 vaccines. But you have a new culture of people here. And from the beginning, we have been taken advantage of. And that's just, I can see people. We know people from the beginning of the century. They sold their mineral rights for a dollar. And I'm sorry, the, all of our coal money, I would say it now, and it's always existed, our coal severance dollars went to Northern Virginia. They weren't people, they always took away, they extracted, they didn't put back. So of course, when this vaccine came in, they were distrustful. And then you have the whole political scene making it worse and uh, just compounding it. But Teresa and I went on the offensive instead of the defensive. We tried to give the correct knowledge about the vaccine and that we've always had vaccines from the beginning, that they're uh, side effects to any drugs that we happen to take. But when people heard us, that's how in Dixon County, where we were founded, uh, they have 70, 78, 79% vaccination right now. And we did a lot of, um, a lot of campaigning out there, a lot of begging. And it, what has hurt us as far as getting the boosters in people is because the virus, because it keeps mutating. It's now, we hear all the time, well, you're going to, uh, to experience COVID anyway. You're going to catch COVID whether you're vaccinated or not. What we try to say now is you may be, you know, um, you probably will end up with COVID. We all may, but you're not going to end up with the severe outcomes. And trust is a lot of it. And Teresa and I have went on the media. We went any way we could get in people's homes. We spoke at churches, anything we could do to try to educate. And we also tried to bring faith community in, leaders in the leaders here in to try to get past that distrust. And one thing that uh, we really think it is at the at the bottom of this, uh, you know, when we're looking at like the social determinants of health, um, you know, when you're, you know, you can tell somebody, you know, you know, take the vaccine, take the vaccine, take the vaccine. But when you've got people that have been just, um, you know, entrenched in poverty for so long, you know, I may be telling a working mother, take the vaccine. And she may be thinking, if I take that vaccine, you know, and I have some side effects and, you know, how am I going to be off work for, you know, even even a day to, you know, recuperate or, you know, things like that. I mean, you've got to really take a lot of individuals where they're, you know, where they're at and what they're, you know, what their concerns are. And so, so really, you know, looking at it from from that point, you know, when, you know, when you're trying, when your focus is on, um, you know, putting food on the table, your focus may not necessarily be, you know, that may not be at the top of your priority list is getting, you know, the, the vaccine because, you know, uh, and that is the pro that is really the I think the, the the main problem here is that people are so just so desperate to try and to survive on a daily basis where there is you know so much inherent poverty that still exists that should not exist and they're just trying to get by day you know day to day and you know that um, you know it's not rising to the I mean it should be but you know and that's easy for you know us to say that it should be but in reality when you know when they're thinking about you know how am I going to pay an electric bill or how am I going to pay this, you know, this uh, 
excessive doctor bill or how am I going to get food on the table for my kids and things like that. You know, when you're just in that in that vicious you know, that vicious cycle of, you know, with the here and now, they are really, their their senses are not attuned. They do not have the cognitive function to look past, you know, look, look into the future because they're, they're focused on the immediate now and now, not, you know, not, you know, three, three months from now or two months from now, I may, you know, get COVID or something, something like that. Uh, these people are in survival mode here. And I think you, you can you combine that with, um, uh, the distrust from the government, uh, you know, there's a lot of Scotch-Irish, you know, here, you know, and the Scotch-Irish really, that you know, the heritage, they're, they're people of, you know, uh, very individualistic, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're very, they do not want to be told what to do. So that's the reason Paul and I engender trust and talk with them on that level, you know, to get them to, t you know, to take the vaccine. And we've been very successful like that. But, you know, they do not want something, you know, because that comes from, you know, being in Scotland and Ireland and, you know, all the, the, the fighting that was going on there. And they, you know, they, they came here, you know, to America to escape, you know, that. So we really think it's, you know, a combination of the Scotch-Irish heritage, you know, that I'm not going to be told what to do, the distrust of the, the, you know, the government because the people have been taken advantage of uh, and are still being taken advantage of most recently, you know, is with the opioid crisis, like with Purdue Pharma and, and so forth like that, where the area was targeted, knowing that they have the, the most uh, disability rates in the nation, this area was targeted, uh, you know, and we're left with the, you know, with the aftermath. And, you know, my father was a, a coal miner, uh, you know, like Paula was saying, it's been an extractive uh, economy. You know, you look at the Middle East, you know, the Middle East is so wealthy from, you know, the, the oil, you know, and you would, you, that, that same thing should have been here, you know, in, in, in the mountains with the coal, but no, people came in and take it, took advantage. The, you know, the coal barons at the turn of the century came in and took advantage of these wonderful, wonderful people, you know, and told people, uh, you know, we're going to get, you know, give you money for mineral, minerals that you can't even see that are, that are underground and all this this all this fed back into you know up into the northern uh, the northern communities, the, the money was taken from here, uh, and the rest of America has really just turned a blind eye to the, these people. My, like I said, my father's a coal miner. The success of this nation has been born on the backs of these coal miners, and they're still yet a forgotten population, and they're forgotten far too long. And, and Paula and I have made it our life's mission that we will try to bring at attention, uh, you know, to the desperation and the despair of our people here. Um, you know, and this really COVID really unroofed a lot of, you know, a lot of that, you know, a lot of that here. And that's the reason we have worked just so hard going back to COVID. We've worked so hard to keep it from decimating our people because these are our people here and that 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 we love. And these are the greatest people uh, on 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 the planet, you know, they're all about God and faith and country and, and you know, um, they're they're wonderful, wonderful people. And we are happy to help bring attention to those disparities. Thank you for all yes, of that. That was yes. fabulous. I, we get passionate. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we, that's great. And we, we were born here. We were born and raised here. So we do become very, we do not care at all. We are from Southern Appalachia, and we love that. We love being from Southwest Virginia. You can call us country. Do not call us hillbillies. You're talking about going from zero to 100 with Teresa and myself. <laughs> our families, our, our, our friends here, our neighbors, they're not hillbillies. You know, and just because you may not have an education or have been able to obtain an education as others have does not mean that you're ignorant.
And we have actually had cultural uh, classes. Teresa and I have done cultural classes at the University of Virginia to help people that come here to say, you know, when you talk to our people and our patients, don't talk down to them because if you do, they're going to cut you off just like this. Absolutely. Yeah. And those stereotypes are still being, you know, I mean, put forth, you know, today. I mean, Paul and I, you know, deal with him quite frequently more than we should have, you know, in in the year 2022. But, you know, again, those stereotypes were you know, uh, supported by the, you know, the media, uh, again, all to take advantage of the pop, you know, the population here. We actually had to tell you something uh, for Teresa and myself, and we make sure we, you know, my mom and dad were both educators. My dad had his master's degree, so people here are, can get educated if they have the opportunity. You know, I myself always would wonder, and I can, as another story is I actually asked my mom, well, mom, why don't they go somewhere else? Why are they, why do they stay here? And she looked at me and she said, okay, Paula, why don't they? They don't have any money. You know, how are they going to move? They don't know anybody. What are they going to wear? Where are they going to live? Where are they going to stay? And, I mean, that kind of opened my eyes because, you know, uh, Teresa and I were bound and determined to get our education. My mom really encouraged us to, and we support each other. We always identify ourselves as doctor, too, because when you look at Teresa and myself and you hear our accent, a lot of people we were told by someone that we really respected, they underestimate us until they hear us. And then they know that's a mistake. Don't ever underestimate the two of us. Absolutely. And it's the Scotch-Irish coming through in us. <laughs> <laughs> or the Indian on my side. I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the you know, the, the I mean, the Scotch-Irish, they're, they're fighters. And mm-hmm. Paul and I will fight for our people. I mean, you know, they we have to we have to fight to survive here, you know, and, um you know, one of the th- one of the things that Paula and I want to do is really empower, you know, women more because you know, like even women, um, they they retire with thirty percent less income than than men. So I think that we've got a lot of justice work, a lot of social justice. We learned that from really Sister Bernie teaching us about social justice and our, you know, our our Catholic uh, influence, um, you know, here, you know, to fight fight for others and fight for social justice. All right. Well, steering back to Sister Bernie, and that was a fabulous tangent. But let's go. Let's go back to the health wagon. Okay. So, so things have, have changed a bit since Sister Bernie first started providing care out of her car. How has the health wagon grown over the years? It has been phenomenally blessed. Uh, you know, when I look back, the only thing I can explain it is it's, it, you know, Sister Bernie started this as a faith-based mission. And, you know, I always tell people I, we work very hard to, you know, bring in the, the funding so that we can continue care here. But, you know, uh, God God called us to this mission, so I'll leave it to God to pay the bill. And he has did a phenomenal job at, uh, you know, keeping, uh, keeping the health wagon, you know, going. I actually started out on the back of Sister Bernie's porch. You know, we would... Uh, we would go out and see the patients, and then we we would work on her back back porch. And so we've come a long ways. We have now um, we've got five clinics, and we've got four mobile units. And like I said, we did an astounding thirty five thousand patient encounters last year. We're medical home to over ten thousand patients, so that's an incredible uh, feat. We're getting ready to open. Um, our dental, we're, we're uh, going to do a groundbreaking in May for our new dental uh, dental clinic because dental is certainly one of the you know the big needs that are 
ongoing here. So we're still got a lot of growth ahead of us. We're getting ready to uh, receive a brand new mobile unit that is uh, coming out and from Colorado. Just absolutely uh, beautiful mobile unit. So we've got another mobile unit that we'll be putting on the roads. And we just continue to grow with all the specialty services. We have, um, we're you know, we're known for a lot of firsts, uh, you know, in, I mean, in the world, one, one such is... Uh, doing uh, telecystoscopies, which is a lot in the bladder, looking for bladder cancers. We have low rates of bladder cancer here, um, and we know that just people are just not getting tests. So Paul and I are actually trained to do um, telecystoscopies with Dr. Tracy Crutsby at the University of Virginia, and those are the first in the world that uh, being done. We have a really uh, robust telehealth structure. We do more telehealth than anybody uh, in the United States. We did like the first wound care clinic over telehealth. Um, you know, we just, we, we have to be resourceful and bring a lot of, you know, um, you know, first here. We did the first FAA drone delivery in the United States. We're very, was very excited about that. Uh, we had national, uh, in national and international media that expanded like over four continents on that. Our drone is going to be, when they finish the Space and, Avi Space and Aviation Museum at the Smithsonian, it's going to be inducted into there once they finish, um, they've been remodeling the museum there. So it's going to be inducted in the Smithsonian. Uh, but we just have a... Um, very, we just try to bring any resource that we can here. We've got a lot of specialty clinics that are ongoing uh, as well, just trying to, you know, bring resources back, you know, to the patients. We do a lot of, um, I think God is also calling us to do, like, more of a social uh, ministry response, getting people needed, you know, food and clothing items and, you know, furniture and things like that. We just build a new 5,000-foot um, storage building out here that we can house such items and things like that because, Certainly, you know, at the end of the day, these people are still very much struggling for, I mean, you know, basic needs such as food and clothing. So we're doing a lot on that, a lot on that as well. And the health wagon, as you mentioned, is no longer a single mobile unit or even just mobile. Why did you decide you needed a stationary location? Oh, because of all the patients that we were seeing. And I actually, uh, I just want to brag on Dr. Tyson for a minute. We were, I was on the board whenever the hospital, the local Catholic hospital said that they were not going to carry us anymore. So Teresa started out with a very limited, limited budget. And we now have actually uh, five clinics at this time and two mobile units and we're adding dental. And that was all under her leadership since 2006. And we decided we needed it because we wanted to add specialty care. It was hard to attract specialists to come to extreme areas of Virginia. And here in Wise County, it was a little bit more central, and we were able to open up for more specialists to come. We also wanted to add more diagnostic tests and things that we could do that there's only so much you can do on a mobile van, uh, but we have, it exploded to this, and it's just been from the favor of God, and like I said, Dr. Tyson, even though she's my best friend, under her leadership, I mean, it just exploded from everything, anything that we remotely could have dreamed of, uh, God is just making it unfold completely, but you, you can't do everything everything in a mobile van. So it was basically to expand our specialty services. Mm -hmm. um, as well as you've now got a dentist. Are you going to soon add a dentist? Why oral health? 
We have a dentist, uh -huh, Dr. Olivia Stallard, and uh, Paul and I actually grew up with her her parents, uh, Karen and Mark Stallard. And so uh, when she went off to dental school, we got her to come back here and be with us as well. So, um, And she's very caring and very compassionate and, and so forth. So we're very excited to have her. And we're going to be opening uh, a 10-bay uh, facility. Because, you know, the dental needs here are just so profound, and that was really you know, uh, evident with the remote area medical that we did for 20-some years and the largest medical, it was the largest medical outreach in the United States. That was the one thing that everybody came for was to get, you know, dental care. Because even if you've got, you know, health insurance, sometimes you may not have dental or eye services. And so it's just a crucial need. And then, you know, the dental services are so closely entwined with, you know, m the medical. You know, so if you've got, di you know, diabetics with you know, really high blood sugars and things like that. I mean, you can see a blood sugar with a diabetic, you know, if they've got an infected tooth, maybe running, you know, four or five, six hundred, and you pull that tooth and within hours, you know, they're back down to, to normal. You know, we do have a high prevalence of uh, uh, diabetics here, you know, and we know that, you know, oral care is also related, you know, to like the, you know, cardiovascular events and things like that as well. So, you know, it all ties to, you know, it all ties together. So we're very holistic in our nature, trying to treat, you know, everything from the soul to the dental, to the eye, to the medical, uh, you know, and special, and you know, entwine that with specialty services as, as people need them as well. And being resourceful, taking the care out into the community, you know, by taking the mobile units where the, the people are, and then having the stationary uh, clinics to, you know, support, like Paula was saying, like our specialty care and, you know, our primary and preventative care and, and so forth. So we're just, we've got a very robust program here. We're nurse managed. It kind of tells you what you can do when you put nurses at the forefront also. We have been nurse managed since their founding. Excellent. And the health wagon also leads the Move Mountains Medical Mission. What is that? So Moon Mountains Medical Mission, or M7, it's got seven core concepts. Um, uh, dental, eye, medical are the, are the three main ones. We also throw in some veterinarian and pastoral support, some ad advanced diagnostic support as, as well. And so that is, um, since we're not having remote area medical anymore, we're doing more smaller uh, events. We just had a smaller event with um, East Tennessee State University. They're third-year medical students. We've been partnering with them for over, gosh, uh, you know, nearly 30 years with, with them, um, you know, and bringing care into the community, doing like what we call, uh, it would be in health outreach. They're too big to be called just like little health fairs. This is like where you can come and get, you know, physical exams, lab works, um, you know, diagnostics such as ultrasounds and things, you know, that nature, x-rays and so forth. But we're calling them M7s and uh, Move Mountains Medical Mission event. And so it's kind of a rebranding of of our Ram Wise, you know, Wise County, when uh, the founder, Sam Brock, when he passed away a few years back, it was his long, his vision for us to go on. And, and you know, we'd been doing this for 20, 20 years, but it was long his vision for us to continue on and, and you know, and help the individuals here in with our own capacity. And so we're always looking for volunteers, you know, to, to help with that as well as we do these smaller outreaches. And maybe, you know, maybe in the years to come, we can get back to, you know, larger outreaches. And sadly, substance use disorders are a major concern in Appalachia. Does the health wagon have the ability to help those who are struggling with addiction? 
Yes, we do. We have actually uh, developed with it began with University of Virginia and a and a telehealth and a grant through telehealth, and we have a medication assisted treatment program. And as we always do, we always look outside of the box. We always look at all of the the issues uh, that are available. So actually, what we ended up uh, Suboxone was what the medication assisted treatment program was that they had through UVA, and Dr. Tyson and myself went there to train but when we came back my husband's actually an attorney and he said you can't give suboxone here that's the number one drug next to meth in the united states so we even though it was more uh it it was very much more expensive and we had to to promote we had to advocate to make sure that this is you know the right program for us we give sublocade Sublocate is injectable. It's not easily diverted. And we actually brought in the Commonwealth Attorney and the court system, the drug court system here, because we want the right thing. We want to do the right thing. We want to help the, per the person and not contribute to a bigger problem. And uh, it's been very successful and it does continue. We were able to hire Dr. Ben Carey. He is a psychiatrist and he would see the patients over telehealth. We have a nurse practitioner that works with them. We have a counselor on board and a case manager and we're doing all that we can plus we work with the faith ministries and churches to try to build a support system for these patients that are needing help because substance use disorder is an illness and it's genetic it is not something they would choose nobody at six years old says i want to grow up and be a you know be addicted to meth or be addicted to opioids so we we look at the person holistically and we treat that little girl that just wanted to be pushed on the swing that just wanted somebody to take her hand and it's very emotional for us we we take care of them and we make them feel we we use our terminology is substance use disorder it isn't Anything with a negative connotation, we do not even use the term dirty urine. We do urines, we do not have, use that term because we want to show them respect as we would want to be respected. Because these are people that are very determined to make their lives something, to, start, to get off the drugs. Thank you. What about the, some of the diseases that are related to substance disorders such as hepatitis and HIV? We're going after that, too. We actually have, for several years, uh, had a telehealth program for uh, hepatitis. We still have a very low rate of HIV. It is in the area, but it is a lower rate right now. We have had a GI specialist that actually would see them uh, over telehealth for us. They had to go occasionally to University of Virginia. They had to have biopsies. The lab work, we was able, we were able to, to make sure that they had all this in place because we do treat you know the holistic person so we actually developed a problem uh, a program here when we saw that it was becoming more and more prevalent in southwest virginia uh, southeast kentucky and northeast tennessee and it's been very successful we also have you know the latest treatment is uh has been very successful and actually cures hepatitis if you know the if the conditions are, are right and the right environment they can be completely cured and we've had several patients that have been cured of hepatitis and the it's thousands of dollars for the medication and we have been able to work through our pharmacy connect program and receive this free of charge for the patients that have hepatitis excellent now just like sister bernie the day will come eventually when you decide to retire 
What do you think should be done to encourage the next generation of rural health leaders? Well, you know, we have partnerships with over uh, 50 universities and colleges. I mean, you know, uh, we have students, you know, we have nursing students, we have medical students, we have, you know, we even have like business students, you know, we're, we're all, we always love, you know, special projects and, and things like that. Uh, you know, so, you know, we're doing our part, you know, really to, you know, have people really come in Um you know, that's one of the things that really set, you know, East Tennessee State, um, James H. Quillen College of Medicine apart because they got involved with doing health fairs, you know, here with um, with us early on, like I said, 30 years ago. And then, I mean, the students felt that that was such, their medical students thought that that was such a valuable learning experience that they started um, incorporate that in other regions like in Tennessee and, in, and Virginia as well. So just not doing, you know, um, one series of health fair with with one entity like us but they expanded that and it really set them to the be the number one it helped uh, catapult them to like one of the, the number one rural medicine programs like in the in the nation so we're doing our part to you know educate um you know that that next generation and um you know and look at that sustainability so that we can you know keep people here and you know in the community and continue giving as as we have and certainly we'll, we're mentoring, you know, we have individuals here that we're, that we're mentoring to, you know, one day, you know, take our place, you know, when that, when that day, when that day comes, but it's going to be a long time. So, yes. <laughs> but it's also a dream of mine and Teresa's that eventually, and this is a big dream that, well, you know, I don't think it will happen in our lifetime, but that the government will come up with a program that works for everybody for an insurance program that will actually insure the nation and give them care where they do not have to they do not have to be dependent or they don't feel like you know they don't have to be dependent on this you know a pipe dream of ours would be for the government to help us but like i said it's not going to help in our lifetime and that's probably a dream that's never going to happen yeah that's an optimistic dream that <laughs> Yes, but we, we uh, actually, we get calls pretty much on a weekly basis. I think Paul and I were on a call uh, a couple of weeks ago with somebody from Australia that was wanting to do this. You know, they want to take a mobile unit, you know, and give care in their region. So we try to pay it forward as much as we can, anytime that we can, you know, and help others do this in, you know, in, in their neck of the woods. <laughs> yeah, and we've actually developed, we were developing, and the University of Richmond was helping us with this. We were actually developing a toolkit on how to do this across the nation. Because for right now, at this point in time, I think the only solution you have are free clinics managed by nurses across the nation that take the care mobile to the people and look for the needs. And that's why we developed a toolkit, because we saw that and we saw the need, not just here, but across the nation. You could replicate this, and we want to help people replicate it because we want to see a change. We don't want people dying at 40 and 50 because they had high blood pressure or diabetes at 19 and uh, became blind, become disabled if they live. We actually had a, a patient that died at 35 of a stroke, and he was blind by 32, 33, and the only time he ever received care for his diabetes is when he was in prison. You know, and it shouldn't be money. It shouldn't be money standing from somebody that needs a life-saving hormones such as insulin and what stands between them living and dying is some cash. I mean, you know, that, that should never be. But Paula and I have seen that all of our lives.
Yeah, and I, like I said, I don't see any time soon this improving. And we're out there. We believe in liberty and justice for all. And part of that liberty and justice is to have a, a, a healthy workforce, a healthy nation. And you do that by looking after their needs. You don't politicize health care. So I've got one last question. But you might have already answered this with this last part. But I ask all of my guests, if you could do anything what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? I would just make it accessible. Like, Paul, I, I, I do believe that we have, you know, what could benefit the most. I mean, by, you know, thinking outside the box, you know, not going down the same trajectory that we have been, you know, health care here in the United States because it's not it's not working. You have to do, you have to think things outside the box. Get health care access, you know, to everyone because everyone is so deserving of health care, you know, and, you know, to help our neighbor, you know, for all the negative stereotypes that are out there about, you know, Appalachia, the one thing that we do very well is we care about others. We care about our neighbors, you know, and take that positivity from these these two Appalachian females <laughs> that go out, you know, and try to, uh, you know, uh, espouse health care for, for, you know, for all. Everybody is, so, you know, so deserving, you know, and we just, you know, pay it forward, try to, you know, look outside the box, do things differently, you know, get that, you know, get that health care access to to individuals. It's not that people don't want to take care of themselves. We would put our hemoglobin A1Cs, which is a three-month average of blood sugars against anybody's in this nation because when you remove the barriers, like with a diabetic, when you give them their, you know, you get them their insulin, you get them the diabetic education that you need, you get them the glucometer, you bring access to them, you remove all those barriers, then you get all optimal results, you get optimal outcomes. Our hemoglobin A1C is like 5.7, which is incredible tight control on these, di you know, diabetics that you would not, you know, you would not think would be even humanly possible. But it's all about removing those barriers to healthcare. Remove the barriers to healthcare. You get the optimal results. Just remove the barriers. It's that simple. It's not complicated. Remove the barriers. And I will add a little caveat to that care. Actually, you know, we used to have the care bearers care. In the Bible, we're taught of the Good Samaritan who walked by and saw, you know, his brother lying and dying and beat up and needing help, and he helped care. Look, be the Good Samaritan. Look at your per the, at the person beside of you that, you know, that you see every day at work. We don't know what anyone else is dealing with. Care about your neighbor. Be that Good Samaritan. Ladies, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank, thank you, for, you for having us. us. And please come by. We want volunteers. You all pray for us. Come and see us. We love, we, we love our mountains. Obviously, we've been here all of our life, and we have some of those beautiful mountains in the, that I would put up against the Rocky Mountains, too, because ours are gorgeous here. And we have medical volunteer tourism. We would love to have people. We'll take you on some trail rides, bonfires, and let you, get a, let you see how beautiful our area is. Thank you. That was Dr. Teresa Tyson and Dr. Paula Hill Collins advocating for the removal of barriers to healthcare access, starting with your own actions. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, check out the National Rural Health Association's upcoming conference. Can't justify going all the way to Albuquerque in May? Join us virtually instead. Visit ruralhealth.us for details.
The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.